Astronomy Cast, episode 664, The First Stars. Welcome to Astronomy Cast, our weekly facts-based journey through the cosmos, where we help you understand not only what we know, but how we know what we know. I'm Fraser Kane. I'm the publisher of Universe Today. With me is Dr. Pamela Gay, a senior scientist for the Planetary Science Institute and the director of CosmoQuest. Hey, Pamela, how you doing? I am doing well. How, how are you doing? Good, good. So we did a wrap-up of of the space news in 2022. And while 2022, like many years sucked for space, it was the best, (laughs) right? We had Artemis, we had the James Webb space telescope. We had dart. We had the Chinese space station. We had so many amazing things come together. It feels like it was probably one of the best years in space in my career. So it's amazing. It was an amazing year. And, and I don't see as many exciting things coming up for 2023, but that is, you know, who knows? I I, see, I'm still mourning insight. The insight mission on Mars was, it was my favorite little Mars sitter lander, but it lasted twice its lifetime. It it did. And, and so I guess I'm still mourning. I'm still mourning the little lander that tried so hard. Well, like, uh, like, like, what more could you have asked for it? Right? A like, giant you should have, should have lasted earthquake. for four times as long, ten times as long. They can't all be opportunity. I know. Right. I know. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right. The sun is a third generation star polluted with the metals from long dead suns. Astronomers have also discovered second-generation stars with very low metallicity, but theories suggest there must be a first-generation with stars made from only pure hydrogen and helium. Can we ever find them? So, so first, like, please explain the generation numbering <laughs> scheme for stars because it's ridiculous. Okay, we live in a pop. This... We have a pop one star. Yeah, astronomers astronomers shouldn't be allowed to name things or set the directions of calibrations. And so so just like astronomers screwed up in terms of calling like the brightest stars magnitude zero, meaning faint stars are magnitude 20, um, we decided that our current population is number one. We're number one. Right. Because we're the first star that we ever discovered. Well, yeah. We are the first star we ever discovered. Yeah. Sort of, I guess. You fell asleep the first night and then you found all the rest of them. Yeah. But but anyways, um, so the generation of stars older than us that doesn't have as many metals, can't probably form planets the same way. Those are population two. And as illogical as it can possibly be, the first generation of stars the universe ever formed is population three. Right. So it makes sense. The first star that we ever discovered, they're population one. The second stars that we ever discovered, those are population two. And then we're hoping someday we'll find the third stars, the type of stars, which will be population three, still theorized. Um, okay. So, so that is the, and then how do you define them? Like as an astronomer, when do you take a star and put it into the pop one bucket and put it into the pop two bucket and the theoretical pop three bucket? 
So POP3 means these stars are primordial ingredients. They are made of the exact same stuff that was produced in the Big Bang. Hydrogen, helium, maybe a trace amount of lithium and beryllium. Definitely a trace amount of lithium and beryllium. But then POP1 are all the stars like our sun that are being formed currently. These are things that are 2 to 3% of atoms heavier than hydrogen and helium. And the stuff in between is, is the population too. So once you start getting to the point, and I'm sure this is going to get redefined as the formation of planets plays a larger and larger role. Hmm. But Pretty much, once you start getting to the point that you're not seeing planets forming, that's where you have population two stars. Although I'm sure someone's found planets around pop two stars, or will shortly. The, the issue is, population two stars, these, these are objects that are generally less than a percent of heavier uh, atoms. And if you don't have heavier atoms you can't form planets. So one of the amazing things is globular clusters out there. Uh, these are population two stars orbiting our galaxy. They don't have planets so far. And we have looked as hard as we can possibly look at things that far away, and they're just not showing up. So there's one known type two star that has a planet. Are we sure, sure? Well, oh. It's called a uh, Captain Star. It's a M1 red subdwarf, and the metallicity is about 14% of the sun, which classifies it in the in the type 2 star. How do you always find these exceptions? Because I have a hunt. Like, okay, like, here's my <laughs> standard operating procedure, right? Is that I think... All I do is report on surprising new discoveries and new things moving forward. And so, like, it just it feels like, like somewhere there is a headline, astronomers find the first planet around a Type 2 star. And, like, yeah. Um, anyway, and I'm sure they'll find many more because, and the, you know, astronomers shocked to discover theories overturned. So, yeah. All right, we're going to talk more about the first stars in a second, which we know we don't know of any. Or it's true. We, we, we don't a, yet. We'll be back in a second. <laughs> well, wait a second. I, I may have news for you then. We'll be back in a second. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. Astronomy Cast is a small team that works to do mighty things. And sometimes that's just not as easy as it seems like it should be. And it's easy to get overwhelmed by the unexpected. As some of you know, I spent my fall struggling to recover from a neck injury that just didn't let me do all the typing, art, and other activities I wanted. And even though I was dealing with physical pain, it was the mental frustration of not being able to do my best that really frustrated me the most. Sometimes, to get past the hurdles life throws at us, we need more than a little help from a friend. We need help from a professional who can help us keep life's side quests in perspective and empower us to stay focused on our long-term goals. If you want to live a more empowered life, therapy can get you there. 
Visit BetterHelp.com slash astronomy today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash astronomy. And we're back. All right, so we've classified the, t- the pop one star, the pop two star. Uh, let's talk about the pop three. So these are theoretical, as you say, they are made of the pristine material left over from the Big Bang, pure hydrogen and helium at the exact constituents left over when the universe had cooled down that these atoms could form. What would they, how would they be different from a star like we have today. I'm going to guess no planets, but then even that, like I'm sure at some point someone's going to be like, we found planets around a, we've, we discovered pop three stars and we also discovered a planet, a gas giant, who knows? All right. So pop three gas giants. Anyway, please, please continue. All right. What would they be like? So one of the weirdest things in trying to understand stars is what are the effects that those heavier elements have on the ability of the star to form and radiate heat. And it turns out that if a star is made of pretty much just hydrogen and helium, the light that is forming in its core just radiates out. And and because it's radiating away and not interacting as much with the protons and electrons, because the energy levels just aren't right, the, the star is able to become much more massive before it starts pushing out its outer layers. And a star that's more massive, in this case, 100 to two, 300 times the mass of our sun, it's only going to live for a million-ish years. Mm. So we're in the situation where the very first stars formed roughly 100 million years after our universe formed, and then they only lived for a million years before they underwent this super weird form of supernovae where the star essentially eats itself from the inside out and leaves Nothing behind except for a spray of light and heavier elements. So you don't get a black hole. You don't get a neutron star. You just get the thing detonating completely. It's it's called a, a parainstability supernovae. And so talk about this. You say eats itself from the inside out. But what what yeah. is actually happening with parainstability? So you have in the core of the star... Uh, gamma ray photons are getting produced and these extremely high energy gamma ray photons, they're going to be interacting with protons, with electrons, not as efficiently as if there were metals. And, and they're also going to be interacting with each other. And ideally the rate of energy production is such that the star is in thermodynamical equilibrium. Gravity is pushing inwards, heat Mm -hmm. and light are pushing outwards. Again, the light isn't as effective here because it's mostly just flying through the atoms. And when these gamma rays interact with each other, they will produce an electron and a positron. This is a particle and an antiparticle that are able to then later interact with each other if they hit each other later and produce more gamma rays. But because of the kinetic energies involved, some of the energy is lost in this process. And the lower energy gamma rays are are going to lead to 
a changing situation where the outer layer of the star isn't being supported as well. The star begins to collapse down. As the star collapses down, it heats up. More gamma rays are produced. Hmm. Gamma rays interact with each other because there's more of them. It's easier for them to interact. They produce more positrons and electrons. These interact and annihilate. And the star is literally eating itself wow. out of having matter and energy through the loss of energy to kinetic energy. It's it's wild. And what gets me is we think we may have actually been able to see the chemical fingerprint of one of these kinds of supernovae in the light of distant quasars. Okay, and, well, that was the evidence I was going to bring up. So, so, yeah. so then, yeah, yeah. Um, and so, I mean, we see those pair instability supernovae. We've seen these detonations before, but just from heavier stars, just right. stars with other elements like POP2 or POP3, POP1, sorry, I got to keep it straight, <laughs> but th- second and third generation stars. But they're yes. very massive. They have exploded as parent stability supernovae and just completely vaporized themselves. No black hole, no neutron star, right. just kablooey. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. All right. So they live as... Now, you were starting to make some estimates of their masses, 100 times the mass of the sun, 200 times the mass of the sun. Do we have a sense of how big these things can get? This is where you end up with a lot of different people arguing in the literature. There are some folks that are like above 300 solar masses, the energy being produced is going to cause no additional material to be able to fall onto the star. It, it's going to be quenched. There are those that are like at 150 solar masses, that's going to happen. There are those mm-hmm. who are like at a thousand solar masses, that's right. going to happen. The safe bet is it's occurring in the hundreds of solar mass range, because as you pointed out, we do see some massive stars in our modern universe. These, these are objects that are 150 solar mass to 200 uh, solar mass when they first form, and they do have these parent stability supernovae when they die. So just how big the very first ones get, we're looking at hundreds is a safe bet, but exactly how many hundreds, we're not sure. And they could... There could be all kinds of weird dynamics that are going on. There could be magnetic field lines. There could be accretion disks. There could be ways to get beyond pushing that material back away from the star. And that's why it's like I saw a simulation where they thought that maybe you could get into the tens of thousands of times the mass of the sun. Like they're yeah crazy. And then like what a super, you know, they simulated in a supercomputer what a supernova would look like when a 50,000 solar mass star goes through this parent stability process. And then that light doesn't get very far because the early universe was not yet ionized again, re-ionized. So, so all of this is going on behind opaque layers of gas hiding from us. Huh? So we think about the, sorry, we think about the, the cosmic microwave background as this, like someone came and turned off a switch, but it wasn't like that. No, it was, it was this long, slow, gradual process of the, of the clouds lifting over the course of several millions of years. And so could you have had these first generation stars forming within these, 
this fog of the early universe. Yes, that, that's hmm. exactly where they would have been forming. And we're starting through gravitationally lensed galaxies to be able to see the age of reionization, to see early galaxies that still have these clouds of neutral gas around them. But the very first generation the closest we can come to hoping to be able to find them is that there are pockets of gas out there that just somehow got isolated and left alone for the fullness of time. And and there's one AGC198691. I have to look at its license plate number. <laughs> it is 1 20th of a percent made of atoms heavier than helium. And it has one fortieth the metallicity of our sun, which means it has population two stars. But it is so metal poor that it starts to give us hope that maybe we'll get lucky. And while there's not anything in the nearby universe that is pristine material just starting to form stars, maybe we're going to be able to find some lensed system from Mm -hmm. the first billion years of the universe that we're able to start catching the light of those first supernovae. So then I got got two questions. I gotta remember to bring up the other thing before we end the show. But anyway, uh, so first, let's talk about trying to observe them. So you yeah. mentioned that, like they, even though these stars are ludicrously bright, even though their supernova are brighter probably than any supernova we've ever seen, they are cloaked in the fog of the early universe and will be difficult to see. Yes, both their existence, but also their death. So how could we theoretically see them? If they formed in a pristine galaxy that, or a pristine blob of gas that managed to escape the first round of star formation, like a blob of cookie dough without chocolate chips that escaped onto the counter. That escaped gas is, is probably the best hope we have of of seeing these things. Now, the other problem that we're dealing with is if you go back to some of the earliest episodes of the show, we talked about the missing G-dwarf problem. This this idea that low-mass stars have the capacity to live longer than our universe has been around. So the very first lower-mass stars to form should still be out there shining. Mm-hmm. And this is where we get ourselves into trouble of just how effective was the mixing and how much metal does it take to start forming lower mass stars. And these are things we're still trying to to, to figure out. So on one side, you have people looking for the oldest low mass stars that were the very first low mass stars to have ever formed. And on the other side, you have people trying to find pristine pockets of gas in dwarf irregular galaxies, in other forms of dwarf galaxies that, that just don't have anything to increase the mass of stars as they form, increase right. the metallicity of stars as they form. Right, right. Now, you mentioned like maybe through lensing. So yes. Hubble never could, but no. I know that using gravitational lenses in the way that Hubble could see the farthest galaxies, Webb could be able to see the farthest stars. 
And and this is where, at the time that we're recording this, we are about a week and a half away from getting the first deluge of uh, science to come from the JWST at the American Astronomical oh, Society Oh, meeting. meeting. Oh, yeah. I never even thought yeah. about that. You're right. Yeah. It's just going to be chock-a-block, isn't it? They're, they're going to have uh, a whole lot of early results from JWST being announced. And, and I'm kind of afraid that anything I say other than JWST was specifically built with finding first stars in mind um, is going to be out of date within weeks of this episode going live. So stay tuned. We should maybe do an episode. We have it scheduled. Oh, it's already scheduled? Okay. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. We'll do a first science result, first proper science announcements from GWST. That sounds great. Um, So... What would it take then to build – what kind of instrument could see them directly? Because I know there was a there was a space telescope, the Origin Space Telescope, that was shelved. And that was going to be a like 9 to 12 meter class infrared observatory, essentially a super-duper version of JWST. That was hoped could maybe find evidence of the POP three stars. Right. So – what we need is something that is capable of seeing the faintest light from dwarf galaxies that are being gravitationally lensed or from galaxies that aren't yet fully fledged, fully full of light. This goes back to how do galaxies form. We have this notion today that they form both through the massive collapse of giant pockets of of gas, but also through smaller pockets that collapse into dwarf systems and then merge together. Those dwarf systems that have less mass in them will form stars at a slower rate. Big things form faster, small things form slower. By being able to see dwarf systems that are being gravitationally lensed and are super faint and are in the earliest days of the universe so their light is redshifted into the infrared, we can get back about as far as we can get back. Uh, right. it's, it's hard. It's hard. Yeah. yeah. Now, when you think about the size of these stars, and you know, we talked about how they, they don't seem to form, they probably don't form black holes, but there's got to be some kind of link could there be some kind of link between these first generation stars and the supermassive black holes, which are also a mystery because they don't seem to be able to form quickly enough to have the mass that they have already in the universe that we see them. Is there some connection between these first generation stars and these monster black holes? At, at a certain level, yes, because you're you're again at the this problem of if you have an atom, like technetium is my own personal enemy because in stellar spectrum, technetium, it, it has electrons bouncing around at all the interesting, visibly apparent in, in your standard optical telescope colors of light. So you're trying to study whatever small magnesium hydride was what I was working on, whatever small molecular lines or atomic lines, and technetium is there going, hi. There's a few atoms of me. We're going to dominate everything. Mm. And, and what's happening is as the energy tries to radiate out from the center of the star, it's absorbed in by all these different energy levels 
of, of the electrons in the technetium and then re-radiated as the electrons jump between energy levels going back down. So you have this one-two whammy of a whole lot more electrons involved in the energy levels and a whole lot more energy levels that increases the, the ability to re-radiate that energy. And, and this causes a, a pressure, essentially. So the light goes out, it gets absorbed into these atoms, and that supports the outer layer of the star. If you don't have all these energy levels to absorb in the protons, the protons just fly through. So this allows giant stars to form. Well, if you're in a early galaxy and you have collapsing mass that is able to heat up and much more effectively radiate out energy, you can first of all get bigger that way. And then models that look at adding in turbulence to, again, allow more mass to get down in there than you could through a nice, mm. calm collapse. This one-two punch of lower metallicity and significant turbulence allows you to start getting at supermassive black holes, maybe. Right. There's an interesting experiment you can do talking about turbulence. You can take a bottle like of like pop, what you may call soda, and you turn it upside down and it glugs out and it's very slow. But if you give it a spin, then then the water pours out because it gets an air hole coming up the the middle of this sort of vortex Mm -hmm. and the thing will just empty in a in a heartbeat. Yeah. Just boom, completely empty. And so turbulence can have a tremendous effect. So, so when, one idea, if the turbulence models are right, is, is, and if they do just gain, keep gaining mass forever, is you don't get the parent stability supernova. Instead, you just get this direct collapse into a supermassive black hole. Yeah. That would yeah. be crazy. That's amazing. Yeah, to think that, that however many million times the mass of the sun could all collect together into one spot and then just directly turn into a black hole. And, and it all comes down to how big were this slight over-densities and under-densities of mass yeah. in the early universe. Wow. If we had had a different uh, distribution of over-densities, we might have become a universe of nothing but supermassive black holes. <laughs> <laughs> so right. there's your food for thought for the day. I love it. All right. Well, that was fantastic, Pamela. Thank you so much. Thank you. And thank you to all of our patrons out there. Uh, We wouldn't be here without you. And this week, I want to thank Brian Cagle, David Everson, Bruno Letts, Alex Rain. And I'm going to pause and say, we now have an ad-free distribution of this show on an RS feed through Patreon that you can only get if you're a patron. So I'm going to keep going. Uh, We're thanking uh, Michael Prajada, Barry Gowan, Stephen Veit, uh, Gordon Young, uh, Jeanette Wink, Kevin Lyle, Nano Flips, Bara Andre Livesvall, J.F. Rojette, uh, Venkatesh Chari, Andrew Palestra, Brian Cagle, David Trogue, Aurora Lipper, David, uh, Gerhold Schweitzer, Buzz Parsec, uh, Coco Sarif, Laura Kettleson, Robert Plasma, Jack Mudge, Les Howard, Joe Holstein, Frank Tippin, Gordon Dewis, Alexis, Adam Anis Brown, Richard Drum, William Backer, Wanderer M101, Zero Chill, Felix Goot, Andrew Setz, our Astro Setz, William Andrews Gold, Roland Vormerdam, Jeff 
uh, Colin, Simon Parton, Kellyanne and David Parker, Jeremy Kerwin, Rob Cuff, Harold Bardenhagen, Matthew Horstman, Alex Cohen, Philip Walker, Marco Iarasi, David Gates, uh, Scott Cohn, Scott Bieber, Justin Proctor, Matthias Hayden, Claudia Mastriani, Kinsaya Pinflianco, Daniel Loosely, Jim Schooler, wow. Gregory Singleton, Disastrina Cooper, Tim Garish, Tim McMacken, Jeff Wilson, Paul D. D- Disney, Aaron Zegrev, Ninjanek, Kenneth Ryan. And don't you love that there's fewer episodes in January and there's that many more names at the end of the episode? <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. Thank you, everyone, for supporting the work that we do. And uh, we will see all of you next week. Bye-bye, everyone. Astronomy Cast is a joint product of Universe Today and the Planetary Science Institute. Astronomy Cast is released under a Creative Commons attribution license. So love it, share it, and remix it. But please credit it to our hosts, Fraser Kane and Dr. Pamela Gay. You can get more information on today's show topic on our website, astronomycast.com. This episode was brought to you thanks to our generous patrons on Patreon. If you want to help keep this show going, please consider joining our community at patreon.com slash astronomycast. Not only do you help us pay our producers a fair wage, you will also get special access to content right in your inbox and invites to online events. We are so grateful to all of you who have joined our Patreon community already. Anyways, keep looking up. This has been Astronomy Cast. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware.